Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So we are in week four of our blessed sermon series, and I am going to just jump right in. Uh, No pleasantries today, so take that. Uh, We're going to jump right in because we've actually got a lot to cover. And so today we are going to dive in to blessed hearts. You guys all have the grandmother who says that to you. Oh, bless his heart, right? You know, so that's what we're talking about today, blessed hearts. What does it mean when your grandmother says, oh, bless his heart? I'm just kidding. That's not what your grandmother means. But blessed hearts, according to Jesus, a blessed heart is a pure heart. And this carries with it possibly my favorite promise. I know you're not supposed to have favorite promises. All the promises of the Lord are great, right? It's like kids, you're not supposed to have your favorite kid, but every parent actually does. Just kidding. If my kids watch this later, we don't have favorites. But this carries a fantastic promise with it. And that promise is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a great promise. I personally would really like to see God. Anybody else? Right? So if we want to see God, we should probably figure out how to get one of those blessed hearts. Right? Thankfully, Jesus tells us how to do that. And if we break it down in Scripture and look at what it means to be pure in heart, we see this. First, Like we do every week, we look at the aim of a pure heart. We talk about the aim of these beatitudes and how they have to be dead on, right? If your aim gets off even a little bit, you miss the entire blessing. And so we've got to have the aim right. So what is the aim of a pure heart? Second, we have to talk about what it means. How how do we create a pure heart? And then third, we have to turn before we burn. Doesn't that sound fun? Because it rhymes, right? Rhyming things are always more true. Just ask Dr. Seuss. So first, what is the aim of a pure heart? What is the aim of all of these Beatitudes? Now, I I will tell you, this one is significantly different than all of the other Beatitudes that we have covered and probably will cover because the aim of a pure heart is holiness. And you can't get holiness wrong. You can, but you can't. Not when you do it right, right? This is what makes purity of heart unique. The other aims that we've talked about, the other aims that we've talked about with the Beatitudes that we will talk about, they can all be misapplied. You can get your aim off with them. But when we seek holiness, we really can't do that without God. We can't seek holiness for impure motives. We can't do it for the wrong reasons. Uh, I heard, I can't remember who it was, but I I read from an author somewhere or heard someone say once that holiness is the only character trait of God that we cannot abuse for our own self-interest. Isn't that interesting? Holiness is the only character trait of God that we can seek and we cannot seek it 
for wrong motives, by the very definition of what holiness is. I can seek after the power of God so that I can become more powerful, right? None of you do that. I'm talking about the other churches, right? Everybody in those other churches, they're guilty, not you. Just kidding. I, I am the chief of all sinners, right? I'm, I goof this up. I can seek God's power to give me power for my personal gain. I can seek God's wisdom to get me personal gain, right? We can seek these character traits of God without actually wanting God. But holiness is completely unique. We talked about, what, persecution in week two of this sermon series. We can be persecuted for the wrong reasons, though, right? And we can cry out, oh, God, I'm being persecuted, but you're not being persecuted for the right reasons. We can seek peace for the wrong reasons, right? We talked about how there is one unity of the Spirit. And if you are outside of that unity of the Spirit, you cannot have peace with God. But we can seek unity with each other and convince ourselves that that's peace. And that's not what God calls peace. So we can seek these things incorrectly. But with holiness, we can't do that. Now, our problem today is that we have misunderstood holiness. And I think the reason we've misunderstood holiness is because the church has taught holiness wrong. Right? But what do you think of when you think of holiness? It's normally not good things. I mean, some of us think of good things, but the majority of people, when you hear of holiness, you think of what? Well, those stodgy rule followers, right? Oh, they're all stuck up, and they're dusty, and they smell funny, and right? That's what we think of. Piety, rule following, legalism. That's what we think of when we think of holiness. And so it's taken on this negative connotation, so much so that the church has stopped teaching it. That should scare us a little bit, right? You're not going to get any new people in your churches. You're not going to get any, no, no sinners are going to come to you if you teach this holiness stuff. That's, that's old. That's like Old Testament stuff. We've got to make a break from the Old Testament. We just teach grace and fun times and balloons and confetti, but not holiness. And that ought to scare us. The Hebrew word for holy is kadash. It means holy, commanding respect, awesome, singled out, consecrated. The Greek word is ios, and it means awful, and not awful like the way we think of it. The awful, this is interesting, putting on my English teacher hat here. Awful used to mean something completely different. It didn't, it didn't mean something like horrible, but it has its roots in that, which is weird. But, but it literally, I mean, it used to mean awe, like awe when you stand in awe of something like, oh. Wow, awe, full, full of awe, right? But, but the problem that we have here is when we stand in the presence of a holy God, it becomes a pretty awful experience for us because we realize in the light of his holiness how truly terrible we are, right? And so that awful experience when I'm full of awe in the, in, in the, the sight of my creator, it, it makes me feel horrible, right? And so we've, we've kind of morphed this word where you say, oh, how was your lunch today? Oh, it was awful. Oh, it was just, just awful. It tasted like somebody peed in the soup or you know, whatever it is. But, but right, like that's where we go to with it, right? But that's not what it originally meant. So the Greek word originally means awful, awful, sacred, pure, blameless, religious, or consecrated. The holiness of God is something that sets him 
completely apart from the rest of his creation. His holiness is ultimate. It is awe-inspiring because it is so high above us, so different that when we see it for what it truly is, it is an absolutely terrifying experience. And every character trait of God is multiplied through and by his holiness. God exercises his power in complete holiness. That means complete perfection, completely different than the rest of the world exercises power. He exercises his wisdom in complete holiness. You get in the picture here? This holiness is a complete and total separation. You see, it's not just rule following. It's rule following, right? Because in light of a holy God, when you experience the holy God, you've got to do what he says, right? If you're not interested in doing what God says, might I venture to push on you a little bit, you haven't actually experienced the true God. You haven't actually experienced his holiness. Because when you see and experience his holiness, following him isn't a question anymore. You follow him, which guess what that means? You pursue holiness. And in the pursuit of holiness, what do you have to do? You have to separate yourself from everything else. That's what that word consecrated means. It means set apart, right? And so we start to separate ourselves from the world. Again, we see how deeply we misunderstand this in today's church. Because we don't preach about holiness. We don't teach that holiness is something that we should pr pursue. And we teach that people won't come if you teach holiness. But what I'm afraid of, church, is that God won't come if we don't preach holiness. Not because Jeremy thinks it, but because that's what the Word of God says. This is our bridge passage for, for, for between weeks, this week and last week. Hebrews 12, we talked about Hebrews 12 in depth last week. This is Hebrews 12, 14, where it says, Pursue peace with all people, and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, as we talked about last week, is all about what? How God disciplines those he loves, right? If you want to be called children of God, true children of God, you must accept God's discipline. Why? And that's, that's what being a peacemaker is, right? We talked about being a peacemaker, speaking the truth in love, correcting one another, pointing out the things that aren't like Jesus in one another. That's what being a peacemaker is. But before that, before that comes, we have to have a pure heart because without holiness, the work always starts where? In here first, right? Holiness starts in you before you can make anyone else holy, right? The reason Jesus was able, you know, lots of people will look at Jesus. He went to the prostitutes and he told them what it is and he did. Jesus was perfectly holy, bud. You want to put yourself up to that standard? You are put up to that standard, by the way. <laughs> That's how you're going to be judged, whether you made it to Jesus' standard or not. Praise be to God, he gives us the Holy Spirit to do that, right? Our problem is most of us don't live by the power of the Spirit every moment of every day. But 
Jesus spoke the truth in love to everyone he came across with because Jesus was perfectly holy. But that holiness has to start with us. Without holiness, we cannot see God. So we better get it right. Maybe the church needs to stop worrying about how many people are in attendance and start worrying about whether those in attendance are actually going to end up seeing God. Because I fear that we have a lot of people sitting in seats that aren't very concerned about peace or holiness. And honestly, y'all, it's not like the author of Hebrews is the only one who talks about this, right? Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What's the opposite of that, y'all? People who aren't pure in heart don't get to see God, right? There's also that pesky command all throughout Scripture. Jesus says it at the end of Matthew 5. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But y'all, all all through the Old Testament, God's standard never changed. In Leviticus, when Moses gets the law from God, what's God instruct Moses? Tell the Israelites that they are to be holy as I am holy. Right? Right? You see how the standard doesn't change? Jesus didn't come here and radically change the standard. No, it's always been. God expects holiness. When we understand this holiness correctly, when we understand what it means to be pure in heart, we can only be aimed at God, right? I mean, y'all, this is a narrow margin which is why we need the Holy Spirit, again, to aim that arrow. We can't aim it on our own. But you can't aim holiness at anything else. Because with holiness, you're either following God or you're not. You don't get half holiness. You don't get partial points. That's not how it works. And you can't use holiness to your own advantage. Holiness is not going to get you ahead in your career, y'all. Is it? It's not going to get you that new job promotion. In fact, probably the opposite. Holiness is a separation from the world. It's not going to get you wealth and fame and fortune and political points, right? Because it is a separation. It's putting all of those other things aside. It's getting so far as to say, okay, if success comes, if wealth comes, if fame comes, I don't even care, right? It doesn't even matter to me because I'm not living for this world. I'm living for him. I'm aimed at him and his holiness. Holiness is a direct call away from all of the things of the world into complete devotion to God. This is why it leads to being able to be called a peacemaker. And unfortunately, it is also why When you start living a holy life, you are always persecuted for it. There is someone out there, your holiness will rub the wrong way, and they will take that out on you. But if we can't see God without it, I I hope we see the importance of this, right? If you can't see God without holiness, without pursuing holiness, without pursuing a pure heart, And it's pretty important that we get it right, right? So how do we? How do we create a pure heart? 
One of my favorite places to go when I need to purify my heart is to look at the example of King David, right? David, through the Psalms, David, through his life, he gives us some absolute gems. And it makes sense because God himself, in 1 Samuel 13, 14, calls David a man after God's own heart, right? If you're going to be after God's own heart, you probably have a pure heart, right? But David wasn't perfect, was he? So once again, we've got to throw out what we think having a pure heart means, and we've got to look at how did David cultivate this pure heart with God. One of my favorite passages, I've talked about this before, but it's been a little while, but this is a daily prayer of mine. It's, I put it on my, it's on my prayer list. It's the first one. Pray this first thing every morning. Psalm 139, 23 to 24. It's a fantastic verse to memorize. I know some of y'all, Stephanie told me, she has memorized the Beatitudes. So I told her she had to come up here and do it without the script today, but no, I'm just kidding. I don't know if I'd be able to do it in front of everybody. That's, that's kind of a... But this is, this is a Bible verse that I've memorized. I've got it so that, and, and I, when, you, when I read it to you, you'll see why. This is such a good verse, y'all. If, 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 if you have foundational verses that you memorize, I would highly suggest you add this to your list because this is a fantastic prayer to get yourself out of the way. It is a fantastic prayer to tell God, God, no matter the cost, I want you to come in here and I want you to purify my heart. And so I memorized it because I pray it first thing in the morning, but I also pray it throughout the day. I've got it memorized so that any point throughout the day, I stop what I'm doing and I will pray this prayer if I feel like I'm getting out and I need a Holy Spirit check. This is what it says. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Forgive me, that's not what it says. But that's what my version says, because that's how I memorized it. I think I memorized it in the English Standard Version. This is NASB, so it says it different. But anyway, this is a fantastic not-my-will prayer. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, my father-in-law calls it the most powerful prayer in the Bible, right? Because it's the, the prayer that got Jesus to the cross. But Jesus prays to God and says, God, this is what I want, but not my will not my will. And that's such a great prayer. This is a not my will prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. And that is less, you know, we've, we've said this before, but when you're asking God to know something, right, you're not sending God on a fact-finding mission, right? God knows all of our hearts perfectly, completely and perfectly. So it's less David saying, hey God, I, I, I'm sure you have some questions, uh, and I've, you know, I'm keeping this blocked from you, from your holy vision, but I'm going to open up now and you can take a peek inside. That's not what David's saying. What David's saying is, God, you know my heart. Now would you make it known to me? Because I know today we have this idea, because we're so enlightened in our culture and so in touch with our feelings, we know exactly what's in our hearts today, right? <laughs> the God of the universe knows what is in your heart better than you think you do far better than you think you do. And to open yourself up and be this vulnerable with God and say, God, search me and know my heart. Expose me, God. And then this next part, this is a terrifying prayer if you actually think about it. 
put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts. What are you begging God for when you ask him to put you to the test? Do you know how God tests people? Right? He, he says, Jeremy, I want you to go skip through that meadow of flowering daisies, and I'll send unicorns to dance with you. That's not how God tests people, right? Right? When God tests people, it is always through trials and suffering and persecution. Have you read the book of Job? Right? That's how God tests people. Who in the world prays for that? Someone with a pure heart. Because David says, God, I know there may be suffering in the testing, but I also know that that suffering brings to the surface the reasons for my anxiety, the reasons that my heart is anxious. It exposes the areas in which I'm not completely anchored in you. And if that's what it takes, God, for me to grow deeper, for me to get rid of this world and to cling to you, then I'm in. Whatever the cost, God, I'm in. That's a bold prayer, isn't it? See if there is any hurtful way in me. This is giving God permission to root down inside of your heart. God's got permission anyway, right? He doesn't need your permission. But this is, this is opening up and saying, God, search me, right? Get inside of there. See if there is anything in me that is hurting me. And then lead me in the everlasting way. Because guess what? When God does that painful digging, when the Holy Spirit gets into your heart and does that painful digging and brings these things up to the surface and says, Jeremy, you complain too much. You need to stop complaining and you need to rest in me. What's left after he brings that up? I either say, no, nah, God, I actually kind of like complaining. It makes me feel good about myself. Or I go in the everlasting way, right? And this strikes an even deeper gospel chord, one that we see from David it, really in all of his life in Psalms, but it specifically comes out in one specific psalm, Psalm 51. Some of you are familiar with it. Psalm 51 is an ugly psalm. It was absolutely ugly, I am sure, for King David to write. Have any of you ever, like, ugly cried? You know what it means to ugly cry? It's when you cry so hard that it's like snot and tears, like ugly cry, right? Psalm 51 is an ugly psalm. We don't read through these stories and, like, connect the dots on these things and think, holy cow, I bet that was incredibly painful for David to write. Psalm 51 comes after the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, Hey, David, God knows that you had an affair with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Hey, David, God knows that you then sent Uriah into the fiercest part of the battle and had all of the other soldiers pulled away so that Uriah would die, so that you could take his wife as your own and not have to suffer the consequences for your decisions. Not a cheery thing to hear. Remember how we've talked about popular prophets? <laughs> how much fun do you think that was to deliver to David? Not very, right? But this is the psalm that David wrote after the prophet Nathan came to him with these things. This is the psalm that came from a heart blackened 
by sin. I would absolutely love to read the entire psalm to you, but for time's sake, I'm going to read you just the middle. But if you want to take a note, Psalm 51 is a fantastic, even if you're going through your own personal struggle where you need to, to repent of a sin and to come back from something, I would highly suggest you start at Psalm 51 because it's just a fantastic research. But this is what David says in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach wrongdoers your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Do you guys see that bridge to peacemaking again? Right? Because it doesn't start with David saying, I will teach wrongdoers your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Right? It starts with, first God, create in me a clean heart, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. But that's also the gospel hammer here. You see it? David does not say, God, help me to make better decisions. God, help me when I'm feeling tempted to read your word. God, help me when I feel like I'm going to give in and fall, that I turn to the prayer book and pray the prayers of the saints. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, God, create in me. God, you create in me a pure heart. God, you renew a steadfast spirit. You see how everything, all of the action in here and all the action in Psalm 51 is entirely God-focused, right? In fact, if you go through and read the entirety of Psalm 51, you'll find all of the action that's focused on David is the sin that he's guilty of, right? All of the good stuff Everything David's saying, I need to do better. I want to do better. I want, he's not saying I want to do better. He's saying, God, you have to make me do better. God, you have to do this in me because I cannot do it. And that is the gospel. David does not fall into this legalism trap. He doesn't fall into this performance-based gospel trap where he says, I can do it, God. I just need a little assistance. No, no everything. God, I need you to do it all. See, I fell into this trap. Some of you, I, I told this story, I think week one, I told this story, but I had that, th this big ministry event, and it was a fan just a fantastic event. Like, it was just so good, and I th had powerful, powerful testimonies, and I, after one particular testimony that someone had told me, it, like, it blew me away, and as I'm driving away, I, I just prayed and said, God, what can I do to keep this going? What can I do you know, to, to keep running with this. And God said, Jeremy, you guard your heart and I will take care of the rest. And so from that moment on, I went on, all right, I'm going to guard my heart. I'm going to put on the full armor of God and I'm going to guard my heart. Yeah, I'm guarding my heart. Yeah. And that worked for like maybe three hours. Because guess what, y'all? I can't even guard my heart, right? What do I have to do to guard my heart? Surrender, right? This, this Christianity stuff is actually super, super simple. Complete and total abandon and surrender to God. 
you, nobody wants to do it, though, right? It's simple, but it's difficult because everything about this world fights that. Everything fights against us giving everything up to God. It convinces us God will never have your best interest in mind. He's going to send you to the mission field over in China and you're going to hate your life, right? That's what everybody thinks when they become a Christian. I've got that one thing I don't want to do and I know as soon as I become a Christian, God's going to make me do it, right? Mine was becoming a pastor. Ta-da! Right? I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying he makes you learn to love it, right? I wouldn't do anything else if I could, y'all. If somebody said, hey, we're going to give you a billion dollars, you can go live on a desert island somewhere and never talk to anybody again. Dude, I'd still do a pastor podcast or something, right? I love what I do, but God changed that in my heart. Only God can create in us a pure heart. Only God can renew a steadfast spirit within us. Only God can give us a spirit that is willing to obey him. We have to see how utterly dependent upon him we are. There is one thing, one work that you have, one thing that you have to do, though I will say, for those of you who would like to press me after service and argue this, there is a very convincing argument that even that is not your work. That's still something that God has to do. But this is the one thing that we are called to do. You see it in each of these Psalms of David. You see it in the entire life of King David. You see it in all of these heroes of the Bible, right? We look at these heroes of the faith, and y'all, let me tell you, the reason they are heroes is not because of what the world defines as heroic. God's definition of heroic is completely different than ours. But I believe with all of my heart that this is what made King David a man after God's own heart. We know for a fact that it was not because he never sinned, right? I mean, we have the Psalm 51 to prove it, right? Possibly the worst thing anyone could ever do, commit adultery and then commit murder right afterwards to cover up the adultery. And David's guilty of it. And this is the guy that God calls a man after his own heart? But what does David consistently do throughout all of his life? What does Moses consistently do throughout all of his life? What do these heroes consistently do throughout all their life? They know how to repent. Right? David can be a man after God's own heart, and it has nothing to do with his performance. It has everything to do with the fact that David knows he doesn't have all the answers. He knows he doesn't have it all together. And so he knows who he has to turn to to get those things. David knew he couldn't purify his own heart, not to where it would be good enough for God. But David knew who to go to. And so he turned to God in everything that he's done. Repentance, y'all. That's the fancy word. And it is a lost art form in the church today. 
when we think of repentance, we think of Catholicism and going to your priest and confessing your sins and being absolved, right? And we don't like that because we're Protestants and Protestants hate everything the Catholics do. Well, maybe you should stop because they actually do some good things, right? I'm not saying you have to come to me and confess all of your sins. I'm more than open if you would like to do that, but I don't hold the keys to absolving your sins. That's not my job. That's Jesus's. And you can go straight to him. But, y'all, I mean, it makes sense, right? If the church today doesn't teach holiness, there's absolutely zero reason to repent, right? If you're not pursuing holiness, then why repent? And that's the best news in the world to this world as we know it, right? Where everybody wants to be right. God loves you just the way that you are. Don't change a thing, right? It's like everybody has the high school yearbook where you put, you know, never change, right? God doesn't say that, y'all. Now listen, God did make you perfectly. When you were created, he created you perfect. You were perfectly made in his image. Then you were born. <laughs> right? Because sin has completely goofed up all of his creation. Everything. But praise God, he's made a way back. He's made a way back for us, but it requires repentance. This is the one message that we have. You know, we've, we've advertised this sermon series. Just, we didn't really advertise. I don't advertise, but... You know, we talked about this sermon series about the Beatitudes, Jesus' first teaching in 400 years of silence, right? We talked about that, made it super dramatic so that everybody gets goosebumps, right? There's actually one thing that we're told Jesus preached before the Beatitudes. We just don't have in-depth teaching of it. And this is what Jesus taught. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. Which means all of these things that we're studying, repentance is foundational. Before you can take one step with Jesus, you must recognize that your way is broken. There is this awful, awful lie in the church today. Awful lie. That, you know, it's, it's like the sack race, right? You guys know the sack races at the, at the fairs and festivals and stuff, right? You got one leg in the sack, Jesus has the other leg in the sack, and you can kind of go your way, and Jesus can kind of go his way, but as long as you kind of stay close enough, it keeps you fairly on track, right? Y'all, you're either in the sack or you're out of the sack. Jesus doesn't do sack races. Before you can take a single step with him into God's kingdom. Stop believing this lie that you can chart your own course, you can go your own way, you can, it's God's way or the highway, right? It's either all God's or it's none of God's. And repentance is the first step. To repent literally means to turn completely around. To turn completely around and go in the opposite direction in which you were going. Right? With Jesus. To truly follow him. Y'all, Jesus is not just a trinket that we can carry around with us when we choose. I, I, right? 
I, I mean, when you, and, and, and maybe we need this. Holy Spirit, maybe we need this. Maybe we need sackcloth and ashes and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Maybe we need that in our lives right now. Because so often, y'all, I have treated Jesus as a trinket to carry around with me when I feel like it. He's a cross that I put around my neck as long as it goes with my outfit. This is the God of the universe we're talking about here. And it's that easy to just shove him in a pocket when we don't like what he has to say? It's some God we serve. And it's not the true God. These things, guys, we, we, these things have to break our hearts. These things have to light a fire under us because until the pain of staying the same is great enough, you'll never change, right? God, break our hearts for this. To truly follow Jesus, we have to know without question that we need a Savior. But to need a Savior we have to recognize the fact that we need saved. And to recognize that we need saved, we have to realize that my way of doing things has made a complete mess of my life that I would never be able to climb out of on my own. Y'all, Christianity is trying in the United States. Christianity doesn't suffer from this in other places, especially impoverished places places where there's incredible persecution doesn't have this problem over in those places but in the united states we've we've got this strategy of going to people who don't really think they need a savior and trying to convince them that you know by appeasing their needs of soccer leagues and you know all of these frilly things that they need jesus you know, we've talked about this last week, but you know, about going to the people who are hurting and who are lost and who are misfits and who the world looks at and says, oh, they can't be Christian. They don't do Christian things. There's a reason Jesus went to those people. Because those people can see clearly that their way is broken. The people that Jesus struggled to convince that they needed a Savior were the wealthy and well-to-do. Because they look around at their life and they say, well, God, it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> Saved from what? <laughs> I'm on the top of the social ladder, my career's going great. What exactly do I need saving from? I go to church on Sundays, punch the clock, come out. Absolutely awful immoral business practices, but <laughs> hey, you know, I mean, you got to get ahead somehow, right? God uses the wealth of the wicked to... But those who are hurting know that they need something more, Right? those who don't fit in, those who are outcasts, those, those are the people Jesus went to because those are the people that would listen to him. Those are the people who would say, you know what, God, you're right. My way is broken. I think I'm ready to come to you. Too many churches don't teach this foundational step, y'all. That is why we have so many shallow Christians in this country today in the Western world today. We show up to church on Sunday. 
We do our Christian thing, show up to our Christian Bible studies, but any other time, nobody would have any idea that you're a Christian. You maybe even put on a, uh, on a front when you're in public. But as soon as you're behind closed doors, you look at whatever you want to on the television, you look at whatever you want to on the internet, you do whatever you want, you know? It's my private time. That's not how God works. That's not how Christianity works. I think one of the biggest reasons for that is because how emotionally driven we have become as a culture and as a church. As, as our culture has become more emotionally driven, the church has jumped right on that bandwagon, right? And now instead of pursuing holiness, it's okay to just pursue an experience with God, right? And so we're taught experience trumps everything. You got to have that experience. And if you have the experience, well, your experience trumps everything that the Bible says. Whoops, that's not how it goes, right? In the process, we've tried to get Christians to burn before they turn. And that's completely backwards, y'all. That is not God's way. Look at what God says through the prophet Joel. This is in Joel 2, verses 12 through 13. It says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and tear your heart and not merely your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, and relenting of catastrophe. I really love that verse 13. We see it a lot in the Bible, and if you don't understand what's going on when you read it, do a little research, a Google search, and it'll pull up for you. This was the Jewish custom, right? This is a custom in a lot of ancient worlds, not just the Jews did this. But any time, any time someone did something that you disagreed with, somebody did something that was unholy, you did something and needed to repent, whatever it was, you tore your clothes as a sign of, ah, I don't agree with this, right? And then you put ashes over your head, and then you wore like some kind of sackcloth that was this really uncomfortable garment that would rub against your skin. It was, it was almost like a way of punishing yourself, right? To, to show repentance and sorrow for, for what you have done, or even lots of times we see it in people like if someone else does something wrong, if someone else commits a sin, you tear your clothes and kind of back away from it and be like, Lord, I'm not part of this, right? Again, it's, holiness is separating from, right? So it's pulling away. We see it, ironically, in the Pharisees when Jesus makes all of these claims to being the Son of God, right? Jesus says, I am the Son of God, and the Pharisees say, rip! We're not with him, Lord. If the lightning bolts come, that's the guy you want, right? But here's the problem with the Jewish people, and it's the problem with us too, y'all, that Joel is getting at in this prophecy. The Jews learned very well what repentance looked like. We know very well today what Christianity looks like, right? And so we weep as loud as we can. And while you're weeping, you know, you, anybody ever do this with your mom? You know, is, sorry, mom, my mom's listening to this, but after a while, your mom starts spanking you, and the spankings don't hurt anymore, but you still cry because you want her to think that it hurt so that she doesn't say, well, wait till dad gets home, 
but so you cry, but then out of the corner of your eye, your, your hand, you always like peek over to see like, is she buying it? Like, is this working? Right? But that's what we do with God, right? We cry and we let, oh, Lord, is everybody watching me? Look at how sorry I am, Jesus, for my sins. You got me. Right? At our worship nights, we jump and we dance around, and the louder the better, right? Because if we're loud enough and if we're exuberant enough and if we've got enough passion and zeal, nobody will notice that the Holy Spirit's not actually doing anything. Right? The Jews knew full well what it looked like to tear their garments, but they did so without ever repenting for any of the things that they did wrong. And this is painfully obvious in the fact that when the Son of God himself is standing before the leaders of the Jews and speaks God's truth clearly and plainly for possibly the first time in human history, it's never, his, God's word has never been taught more clearly than when the word of God himself was teaching it, right? And they tore their garments to say, we're not with this guy. And I have to imagine in heaven, God's thinking, I know, that's the problem. You haven't been with me for a long time. We fall into this trap today. We know what it looks like to be a good Christian, and so we put on an act. The more emotional, the better. But y'all, the proof is in the pudding. Because we can act however we want in church on Sunday morning but if we are still running straight back to the same sins that tripped us up and entangled us when we came in here, are we truly repenting from anything? Tear your hearts and not your garments. Our problem, I think, is that we've put the cart before the horse. We try to teach people that having enough zeal and enough passion and enough fire for the Lord, that's going to get you there, right? Yeah, get the, let's muster up the emotions and let's do that and then people will turn and repent, right? But that's never how it happens in Scripture. We just got done reading, I had no intention on teaching on this this week, but in our Bible in a Year plan that we do as a church, we read the story of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a king of Judah and he's one of the rare kings that you read in the book of Second Kings and Second Chronicles that actually did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Most of the kings you get to and it said he did not do what was right. But Hezekiah, as I was reading this, obviously I was preparing for this sermon, and I was reading it, it's interesting because when you read the story and you've got this lens on of, you, you know, this, what we're talking about here, it's like, holy cow, Lord, this is exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> and God, you know, smacked me upside the head and said, of course it is, Jeremy, it's my word. You think I'm going to stray from it? Like, <laughs> right? But King Hezekiah is a great example of this. King Hezekiah experiences personal, personal repentance first and then reaches out from there. He doesn't, he doesn't start with passion and zeal and emotions and rev it all up, right? And reading that story, it was incredible. I've seen a bunch of emails recently from all well-meaning ministry leaders. I do not mean this as a dig towards them at all. But you, I'm sure you all get some of them too. But the, the, you know, the emails that tell you, 
we need, as Christians, we need to be praying. 2 Chronicles 7.14. Every morning you get up at 7.14 a.m., every night you go to bed at 7.14 p.m., we pray 2 Chronicles 7.14. And for those of you who don't know, that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. But maybe we need to start living 2 Chronicles 7.14 before we start praying it for the nation. Because, y'all, I'm sorry, but every time I've ever gotten one of those email blasts, the, 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 and this is partially my fault because you know how you read into things. It, like there's implicit and explicit. It's never I- explicitly stated, but like the Im- implications that the people are making is we need to pray that all of those other people will repent and turn from their wicked ways. And then God will come and save our nation. That's not, that's not even what the word means. I repent and turn from my wicked ways. And if all of us do it, but I can't make you do it, I have to focus on me first. But y'all, this is exactly what happened in this story of Hezekiah. I'd highly encourage you, I'm going to read you just very select portions, but I highly encourage you to go back and read 2 Chronicles 29 to 31. If you read it in our Bible in a year plan, go read, read it. If you haven't, go check it out. Because the story of Hezekiah is a great one. This is exactly what happens in Hezekiah. In 2 Kings, which is the parallel passage with this, we're told this about Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, and after him there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah nor among those who came before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not desist from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. But this is what I found so interesting about Hezekiah. After Hezekiah repents and says, holy cow, God, we got this wrong. We're not doing any of these things right. Hezekiah goes through all of Judah and says, y'all, we goofed. Come repent with me. And Judah says, okay, we'll do it. And then he says, but wait, before we do it, I want you to go into Israel and I want you to call all of them to come back to Jerusalem and we're going to celebrate the Passover that we were supposed to be celebrating for all of these years and we haven't. Y'all, we miss this, right? Because we, we look at it and we're like, oh yeah, Judah, Israel, they're like family. Yeah, they were hugging and no. Judah and Israel were at war with one another all the time, constantly. Since the day the kingdom separated at, with Solomon, ever since then, they were at war with one another after Solomon. Get it right, Jeremy. But they're, they're at war, which means who's Hezekiah going to? Not his friends, Who's Hezekiah being a peacemaker to? Not his friends. He is literally going to the enemy and saying, y'all, we have goofed up. Please come join us and repent and let's do this right. Hezekiah went to his enemies and said, I want God's blessing on you. And we read, that some of those enemies made fun of them. Most of the enemies made fun of them. The people that they sent made fun of them. 
ridiculed them, persecuted them. But there were some who said yes. Some faithful men humbled themselves and came and celebrated the Passover. And when it happens, when they start to celebrate the Passover, there actually aren't enough priests for them to make all the sacrifices they're supposed to. And so the word tells us this, For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim and Manasseh and Issachar and Zebulun, had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. (gasps) They disobeyed the law of God? For Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. So the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. The people earned a pure heart? Nah, y'all. That's not the gospel. Because the gospel shows its head even in the Old Testament. God cleansed their hearts. God gave them a pure heart. All the people had to do was turn from their sin, and God took care of the rest. Does that sound familiar? That is the gospel, y'all. We decide to turn from our sin, and God literally takes care of the rest. Jesus took care of the rest on the cross, and the Holy Spirit continues to take care of the rest throughout the rest of history. My favorite part of that story of Hezekiah, though, is actually what happens next in chapter 31. The people who are inspired from their repentance and God's mercy go through all of Judah and destroy every single one of the temples, every one of the false idols, every one of the high things, every one of the Asherah poles, everything. They tear them all down. Y'all, real revival. Not the talk, not the feel of revival, not the emotion. They literally went through all of Judah and tore down every high thing that could ever get in the way of worship of the true God. They tore it down, and they didn't stop there. They went through the tribe of Benjamin. They went through the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, and they tore all the high places down there too. Y'all see this? This is not just revival in one nation, but now you're talking about revival across multiple nations. And they didn't stop there. Then all of the Israelites who had joined Judah in this Passover celebration, who had joined Judah in going and tearing down all of these idols, they went back to their hometown. And y'all, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but I cannot believe that every single one of those people was quiet about it. I can't believe that after experiencing something so incredible that every one of those people went home and just sat on their hands and didn't do anything with it. You see the discipleship there? You see how discipleship works. Hezekiah radically repents, turns from his ways, but he doesn't just hold it as a personal experience. Everybody within his circle, he says, guys, we've messed up. We've got to come to the Lord. We've got to repent. 
they say, okay, Hezekiah, and then it stops there. Nah, because Hezekiah says, you need to disciple out there, and then they disciple. And guess what happens with those people? Then they disciple. You see how this discipling thing works? But it starts with you repenting and then discipling those in your circle. Those in your immediately, immediate area of influence, right? But you repent first. Everybody says they want revival. Everyone in the church says they want revival. But do we really? Because revival is not just an emotional event. It's, you can't get revival at one worship night and expect to be filled up. I don't care how big the headliner is at that worship night. Revival is not an experience. It starts with a personal turning from our ways, from the ways of the world, and a desperate seeking and longing for holiness in our lives. This is blunt, y'all. If that isn't what you're looking for, then stop talking about revival and stop calling yourself a Christian. Because to be a Christian, revival is the first step. Following, I'm sorry, repentance is the first step. Too many R words. Walking with Jesus, following Jesus starts with repentance. And you cannot take the first step into his kingdom without taking that one. Repentance is the only way to a pure heart. A pure heart is the only way to see God. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can create in you a pure heart. Jesus said it himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He has made it painfully clear, church, are you going to listen? Now before we get to that point, it's super helpful if we have a good understanding of what it means to have mercy which is what we'll talk about next week. So for now, until then, my goal is God himself. At any cost, dear Lord, and by any road. Holy Spirit, make my heart desire holiness above everything else, that I might be as holy as you are holy. Purify me, Lord, and help me turn completely to you. Amen? Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learned to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect, fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.